Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to have Tura Bistron, who is the CEO of Selemi, as my guest. You'll probably never have heard of Selemi, but actually, by the end, I suspect you'll want to look them up. Tura, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and what you do and who you serve? Thank you, Marcus. And just a small correction. Unfortunately, I'm not the CEO of Selimir, but I'm the sales director. Uh, well, the more important that, job then. <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like uh, I'm a, not only part of Selimir, but Selimir is a part of me. I've been there for 16 years and I will never look for another job in my life. So they will have to kick me out. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> yeah, so probably, maybe that will happen. So Selimi is not about training, it's about learning. So our founder back in the 60s, he, he turned the whole concept of training and schooling and teaching around, and he focused on the learning instead. So what we do is all about experiential learning and uh, simulations and putting people in dilemmas that make them put themselves in bigger problems and then trying to get out of it. And that way, of course, you learn much more than if somebody's shoving things down your throat. So our founder back in the 60s, he more or less revolutionized the school system here in Sweden. And he, he was a school teacher and he got fed up with having the, you know, like a teacher when you have teens around. They are not necessarily interested in the topic that he's trying to teach. They think about other things, right? Like football and what do you think about as a teenager? So he needed to make it more compelling. And he started to make exercises and experiential learning long before they existed. Fortunately, I'm a few years younger than he is. So when I grew up in a couple of, actually three different countries I went to school in, there was a big difference between going to school in Sweden, where you got to solve little exercises and work together, and the school system in France, where they hit you in the head with a stick. Since I still don't speak very good French, I think the Swedish system worked better, at least for me. <laughs> so tell me this then. There must be a marked difference between the results that you get from experiential learning for an entire country to move their education system towards that. What were the key payoffs that happened as a result of that transition when Sweden took that on as their educational model? Do you? Perchance, know how to ride a bike? I do. Yes. Did you learn by PowerPoint or an instruction book? Well, funnily enough, the flagship book of our company is called You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. So <laughs> I, I get where you're coming from. Yes. So that's, that's the whole idea about uh, putting yourself in problems and getting out of them. And put yourself on a bike without knowing how to ride one, that's certainly a problem, right? And you have to get out of it by pedaling fast and know how to break it. And that's what, why you learn. That type of uh, application is, was used here in the school system as well. Tora, uh, tell me this. What are the four most common questions that you get asked when people are talking to you about Selemi? One thing is actually about how it was all started. And um, that is an interesting story because this old school teacher, he, he later teamed up with a businesswoman here in Sweden. She was actually elected businesswoman of the year in Sweden back in the 90s. And the third founder, the third co-founder, who was a film producer. So the pedagogic approach and uh, 
ideas of this school teacher, together with the business mind of this businesswoman of the year, and the storytelling and drama, dramatic effects kind of thinking of the film producer, made a beautiful combination of storytelling, business learning solutions. So that, that's how it all started. And I, I, I like that story. I like that question because it's such a beautiful background or founding idea of the company. This, again, is really interesting. I'm a very big believer that diverse teams tend to come up with much more creative, inventive solutions to difficult problems. And it seems to be being borne out within your founding team. In terms of how you guys have recruited yourselves, where are you finding people for your own organization? And do they come from specific or diverse backgrounds? I agree with your conclusion so far in life that diverse teams, I mean, it creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? (laughs) I wish everybody was like me sometimes, but uh, I'm really happy that not everybody isn't like me because it would be terrible. So I spoke to a friend a couple of years ago, and and he's an MD at the medium-sized Swedish company, and he he put it really nicely because as an MD, he, he could form in a fairly newly started company, he could form his own management team. And just like you, he was looking for diversity, but he was rolling his eyes and saying, God, am I creating problems for myself? Because with diversity comes different perspectives and different ways of addressing a problem and finding the solutions. So it's not the straight way but it's the interesting way, and maybe you'll learn more along the way, don't you? I think it goes to speak to another issue as well, which is that organizations that understand the value of constructive conflict tend also to come up with more innovative and effective long-lasting ideas. And they fight with the intention of coming up with a better outcome. And the key, I think, is constructive conflict. Destructive conflict rarely ever serves anybody, but it might serve one side temporarily, but the other side will try and get even or be resentful. But I I think diverse teams do tend to create teams that have constructive conflict. They fight like cat and dog. But what's really important there is to ensure that everybody understands that at the end, when you make the decision, you all support it and back it. It starts to fall apart when people go off and they play politics. But I'm really curious then, in terms of building those diverse teams and working with your clients as you do, and I guess that they must come from very diverse backgrounds, how critical is it to be absolutely clear and specific about what's expected of people, what the boundaries are, so that you don't end up with mismatched expectations? Good question. I think that it's one of the many flaws that I have as a manager that I'm not very clear with instructions. I hope I'm clear with the ultimate goal or like the vision of a role or a person or our department and of course the company. And I want people to grasp that freedom, if you want, to find their way of working towards the goal. And it's not for everybody. For some people, especially if you're early on in your career and you don't have much to compare with, or maybe you think that you don't have much to contribute with, you need more of a handrail or a a banister or something to hold on to, right? More, More instructions. 
kind of thing. And that's that's where I struggle. We all have our leadership styles. Mine is more <laughs> not very leading, I guess. Do you have a good number two who brings that order and structure? Yes, I do. And I really did for a period of time. It was a French colleague, and she was really my opposite in many ways, that she was very detail-oriented, structured, and meticulous. Fantastic person. And uh, we completed our, uh, each other in a really good way. We, we respected each other's strengths, and we tried to work with each other's weaknesses. That was a, a beautiful cooperation. And of course, I have many colleagues who, who complete me and I complete this. Well, my boss, our CEO, our real CEO, not me, but the real one, <laughs> is actually more of a detailed-oriented uh, person as well. And uh, much, much more structured than I am. And I think that it comes in the role as an MD or a CEO. It is maybe more important than for me as a sales person. We, we have different horizons in our thinking, if you know what I mean. I need to save the month and the quarter and the year. And for him, he needs to look further on in the future, right? Have you read Marcus Buckingham's book, The One Thing You Need to Know? I did many years ago. If, if it's the one I'm thinking of. The overall concept is build teams where people's strengths make the other people's weaknesses irrelevant and play to your strengths and develop your strengths because those are your best development. Oh, yes. You learn the most about what you already know the most. Exactly. Yes, I remember the. Uh, I remember it. it. It's been a few years since I read it, but uh, I remember the the concept. I like it. I use the Strengths Finder profile as well when I'm working with my clients because um, it helps them to build well-rounded teams. In my experience, often what you find is managers tend to recruit in their own image, only weaker. So you get a lopsided team. Sometimes that can be helpful. But certainly in a sales team, and particularly where you might have a diverse range of clients, it's quite helpful to have a diverse range of salespeople so that if one person isn't working out, then you can put someone else on the account and you can feed off one another. So one of the things I really like to do is I have two salespeople working together on their pipeline. So if I'm working on an account, I work with you and you have to sign off before I can put anything into the forecast. So we hold each other to account. And if you have people with different backgrounds, they might fight, but you end up with a much better, cleaner pipeline. Yes, you get a double perspective. That's what you mean, right? Absolutely. Sorry, I'm, I'm monopolizing this conversation. I do have a habit of doing that. My apologies. So what are the other questions that people tend to ask you? Sometimes we get the... When we talk about business simulations with clients and prospects, they say, no, we don't want to play a game. We want to learn about business finance or business strategy or something like that. So they sort of question the idea of the detour being the shortcut. You know, the detour of instead of telling people how to do this or what is a balance sheet or whatever it is that they are there to learn, we put them in the situations and they have to, in order to see if their team is winning or losing, they need to make the P&L or income statement and their balance sheet and cash flow and all that. And they will be interested in, interested in filling out those little numbers in little boxes because they want to know if their team is winning or losing. Yeah. So for me, it's more of a compelling experience for the participant to want to, to be sucked into completing those statements rather than me telling them how it works. So 
sometimes a question I get is, why do I have to, to spend uh, all this time of playing a stupid game when all I want is for them to understand the PL or what the concept of cash flow? That's a very common question. And uh, once you get over that hurdle and make the prospect understand what it is about, then it's an easy ride. I mean, we, we rarely lose customers, but it's, it's hard to win customers. In fact, I was talking to a competitor not long ago, and he said that he has stopped selling. <laughs> he doesn't any calls, sales calls, or reach out to any prospects or anything. He has a really good website, and it, has, it generates pretty good traffic thanks to advertising and uh, clever content marketing. And the people going there get lured into the concept of, uh, of challenges and interactive learning by the exercises that he provides on his website. And it's the same thing here. You really need to win people over to the light side, if you want, by the inch by inch, by, by giving them a little exercise, a little riddle or a little conundrum and, uh, you know, make them work their way out of it. Very interesting. So there is a proverb which goes, talent creates and genius steals. Have you not thought of hijacking their approach? <laughs> to be honest, Stellamy is the uh, grand mothership of uh, business simulations. We've been around forever. And I think, unfortunately, we seem not to be the geniuses because there's a lot of people who have been, let's say, inspired by our solutions over the years. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> well, that's it's a saying here in the Nordics, you know, that the Swedes invent things, the Finns produce it, the Danes sell it, and the Norwegians buy it. And then the, <laughs> for, a <laughs> and for a decade or so, the banks were on Iceland, you know, and yeah. then everybody had their money in the bank there. But uh, that is a little bit. The Norwegians have oil, they have sheep's head, and they have that very smelly fish. So all in all, you know, they can afford to buy it. <laughs> there you um, go. Excellent. Okay, what, what are three questions that people should ask but don't? People should ask, how do people behave differently in different countries? You know, we have these preconceived ideas, how different nationalities play out and how we, how we behave in different situations, right? There is a fantastic opportunity to observe this in a business simulation because there is some heat and there is some adrenaline in the room or in the online solution, you know? But especially when it's a face-to-face learning and you sit together in the room and you can even smell the adrenaline in the room and, and people wanting to win. And what happens then in different demographics, in different countries, in different uh, gender or age or education or even industries? Selling me, I think we're 90 plus 92 or something percent exports and we're in 70 plus countries around the world. I've had the fortune and pleasure to deliver seminars almost everywhere. And there's a big difference of running a session in uh, the Middle East or in Russia or in Germany, as a general idea, you know, or Brazil or, you know, the United States. You just have to change your style and uh, expect something different from the different places. This is very interesting. I interviewed a friend of mine, Martin Lucas, for the podcast, and he is a mathematical psychologist. And it was really fascinating 
because uh, what he does is he's got 400 different data points that he looks at. Uh, and then there's about another 130 different ways that you can slice the data. And what's really fascinating is people in retail, for example, will stock the front of the shop in a standard way. But in Hong Kong, for example, a premium clothing line might be advertising that they're for adventurous people. But in Hong Kong and China, what they're looking for is elegance. And so they're putting the wrong product out and they're uh, dressing their windows incorrectly. And uh, by helping them to understand the individual drivers, because I don't think people really understand human beings and they certainly don't understand why their customers buy very often. And as a result of that, in this one uh, retail operation, he was able to drive up sales by 64 million pounds in six months simply by uh, helping them to understand how to better dress the windows uh, of their shops and which advertising messages were working and which ones weren't. So that's a really very interesting point. It's one thing if you have a shop in town, in a country, but when you have a website that has to appeal to people from a lot of different countries, it's really tricky to structure the information in a way that appeals to people in Russia and Saudi and Brazil at the same time, right? I suspect so. But again, I think if you invested in having localized web pages and landing pages, then you could address that. I'll speak to Martin. We'll find out. That that, that would be a really interesting conversation. What other uh, questions should people really be asking, but they're not? So one thing that I don't get asked very often, but which I've I find really interesting is what is the difference between facilitating a learning experience and to teach? So teaching is one thing and just trying to facilitate people's learning is something else. Teaching is about, you know, I mean, you can teach me anything and I don't, without me learning anything, you know what I mean? Yeah. But to really have the centricity around the learner and the participant more than around the topic that you're trying to convey, make people interested in it and wanting to learn, to make them take the next step instead of me pushing them, you know, pulling instead of pushing, right? And make them want to propel themselves into the uh, learning experience. That That is really, I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, but sometimes I wish I were because it would be interesting to understand more about how, what makes brains tick. I mean, there are so many people who are good at this, advertisers and storytellers and filmmakers and so on, creating compelling stories and and exciting experience that want people to actually take the next step. I'm right now le- uh, reading this uh, Lencioni. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, Lencioni. Yes, the, uh, this Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I thought that was a yeah. terrific read. And I'm now reading a book called Death by meeting, I think. Death by meeting, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and he has this beautiful analogy of a typical business meeting is somewhere around two hours, an hour and a half or two hours, something like that. Uh, You know, like a weekly management meeting or monthly team meeting or something. And uh, he said that's that's the same thing as an average movie. Same length. Yeah, absolutely. In a movie, he says, when you watch a movie, you a, you cannot change what is happening. I mean, uh, they will die or fall in love or whatever, no matter what you 
do in your seat. And B, it's not really important, right? As yeah. There are a few film experiences that are really, honestly, life-changing. And uh, you will walk away 10 or 12 pounds poorer than you were. And, uh, and a few experiences or laughs or cries richer. But that's it. But in the business meeting, A, you can affect, sometimes really totally change the outcome and the, the, what is happening in the meeting. And B, it, it really affects your, <laughs> your life, your career, your, um, yeah, your salary, food on your table, and your kids' plates, and, and all that. So it's, it should be much more interesting to go to a two-hour meeting than a two-hour movie with those things. Absolutely. A lot of people don't like to go to a, <laughs> a two-hour meeting. They're like, oh, God, I have to live through this, or I have to duck my way out of this meeting. And I think it's sometimes the same with learning experiences or training. There are people who say, do I have to go to this training? Are you insane? I mean, you have a chance to learn something and you get paid for it by your employer most of the time. And people are walking away from that. They would rather sit and, and look at uh, Tom Cruise. Nothing wrong with Tom Cruise, but you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But this then raises the question in terms of management and leadership training and development. What can be done in order to empower managers to be more effective in the way that they develop their people? Well, first, I think it's something that we touched on in the beginning, that a lot of us, we judge everybody from our own perspective. What is important for me, I assume that that's important for you as well. Absolutely. And that's normally a misconception, right? I think that's an important one. What what drives you and what makes you tick at work? I'm as guilty as the next guy. I'm not saying I'm I'm very good at it, but at least I'm I'm humble enough to know that I'm I'm as bad as anybody else, uh, assuming that we have the same interests. Just to pick up on that, I think what really needs to happen is that in the recruitment process in the onboarding process, it's vital that the managers pay attention to and ask about and investigate why that person goes to work, why they're in that particular role, what they're motivated by, who they're doing it for. Because if you can't tie someone's personal motivation, and motivation is an internal force, one of the things that drives me crazy is where you see adverts for must be able to motivate the team. You can't motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation comes from within. And if you don't understand what someone's individual motivation is, then it's very difficult to remind them of why they're doing what they're doing and tie their personal motivation to their corporate objectives. So I I think that's certainly an area that uh, one could explore. No, I really agree with that. You cannot motivate anybody. anybody. You can put them in a position and give them the view or vision that enables them to motivate themselves. But that's as far as you can go as a manager, I guess. And I I like what you said about the recruitment situation. And we work with a recruitment agency that is really meticulous in asking the extra question, not only what motivates you at work or what makes you tick, but also give examples of when that has worked out. Because all of us, who have gone to uh, an employment interview, is that what we call it? 
Yes, yes. Have read up what are the most common questions and how should I answer to them, right? So they they will all say the same thing. But if you if you put them on the spot and ask them what proof or what examples do you have where which proves what you just said or or gives a, you know gives an example of what you just said, that's a, that's a good way of really penetrating that question further. What you're touching on there is habit. If somebody somebody can have done it once or they can put it on their CV, it uh, doesn't mean that they're going to bring that with them. If someone does it repeatedly and they do it without having to be prodded with a cattle prod, then it's more likely to be a habit. And habits are great predictors of success, as are attitudes, beliefs, and values, and people's cognitive abilities, their ability to adapt, to learn on the hoof, to be resilient and bounce back. These are the qualities that tell you whether someone you're going to hire is James Bond or Mr. Bean in disguise. <laughs> or, or both, yes. Or both. <laughs> On that note, uh, I was in a sales call together with a colleague uh, yesterday, actually. And uh, in the end, we, we are pitching on a very large project with a client, a client that we worked with for years. And me and the colleague were sitting in the conversation with the client, obviously on Zoom or, or one of those platforms, because we can't meet now in Corona. This is Recorded in the Corona days. I don't know if yeah. everybody was aware of that. Yeah. So, and in the end, after this interview, we're, we tried to understand the scope and the, the purpose of the training initiative that they're planning. My colleague asked a really clever question. He asked, so what question did we not ask that we should have asked you? And uh, I think that's the same. And uh, like you asked me in the beginning of this, uh, like uh, 10 minutes ago in this interview, what people don't ask me. And I also think that it's a good question to ask in an in a interview when Absolutely. you hire somebody. What should I ask? Uh, a question I like to ask is, why aren't you a better salesman? Yeah, I wish I knew. That opens up whether they're vulnerable, if it helps you to look for coaching opportunities in the interview and see whether they're coachable. So a raft of uh, stuff like that. That is a good okay. one. Tell me this. I mean, you're obviously very experienced in experiential learning. What are the components that make for a good experiential learning experience? Wow, this, <laughs> this can be a very long answer. That's all right, we have time. <laughs> well, the backbone, I would like to start with the most important thing first, and that is the relevance. So you need to practice things that are relevant to your work or your future work. So if you have that in mind when you design the learning experience, that what should they do differently after the course or after the seminar or the experience than they do before, you're a long way along the way, right? Then you just have to, and the answer, of course, to that question is, it can be on skills or it can be on thinking perspectives or it can be on the approach uh, method of, of approaching a complex problem. Most of what we do is on the leadership side, and uh, then it's less skills and more about uh, perspective. And then those are rather complex, interconnected problems. There's not just one simple answer to what should they do better, right? Therefore, it's important to sort of slice and dice and divide those the learning points, if you want, to things that you can practice over and over again 
So you have to create exercises which have the right sort of size or the right interconnectivity or the right interdependency, maybe what I'm looking for. And I've seen a number of uh, simulations with a big element of black box in them. So you push a few buttons. If, uh, this is particularly uh, a problem for online simulations or you know virtual classroom. You, you enter a few numbers here, and you push a few um, priorities there, and then you push enter, and out comes a result, which is great or not so good, and you don't really know what made it happen. Was it that we had a lower price? Was it that we had invested more in marketing, or did we have superior products? So it's important if people should learn anything that there is a clear connection between their decisions and the outcome so that they know what actually made us successful or not. Going back to the bike, why did I fall this time? Well, you pedaled too fast or I pedaled too slow or I leaned too much or whatever, right? If you don't know, or if you play golf, do you play golf? Uh, badly. <laughs> Me too. I, I enjoy playing it, but it's painful to watch. It's a strange sport or sport. It's a strange hobby, isn't it? It's sometimes counterintuitive in what happens. The harder you try to whack the ball, the shorter it leaves. So <laughs> if you have really loose handles, if your handles are relaxed and your hands are soft and relaxed, you normally can hit it harder, like in a badminton yeah. shot or something like that. If you have a good coach or a good pro, they will let you know that. But if you don't know, you just try to hit harder. and it goes in an even worse angle and even shorter than before. You need to, to get some guidance on what went wrong. So that is important to see the connection between our decisions and, and, the, and the outcome. I also think that it's important with the debriefs. The debriefs have to be storytelling experiences. You can say, okay, Team Alpha, you have uh, 9 million in profit. Team Beta, you have 2 million. and Gamma is bankrupt. It's not a really interesting story for everybody. To, you have to unfold the story of a simulated year, for example, if it's like a, if it's like a general right. business simulation. And see what, what actually happened, what led to this. And people love it. I mean, they love a good debrief. They, they will listen to every word and they will, I mean, even better, you can ask them what happened and, and make them come up with the story or prompt them to tell the story in a compelling way. And they don't even know that they know <laughs> how to tell the story or what happened. But normally that's the best way. So um, Very interesting. So how important really is the facilitator? I think that most people who facilitate would say that it's really important. <laughs> that's one thing. <laughs> Another thing is that the more, the better solution or the more carefully crafted solution, maybe or, or machine or machine behind or, you know, the, the, the simulation itself, the better it will fly also with uh, not the very sophisticated facilitation. And I also think that the fluffier the topic, the more important the facilitator. And I'll tell you why. I mean, anybody can run a finance for non-finance because it's very clear what is plus and what is minus and, and, and so on. There are very distinct learning points. How, the, how is a balance sheet structured? But uh, if you want to run a seminar on uh, an interactive experiential 
learning seminar on change management and change leadership. It is much more experience based on experience. Uh, there are much more moving parts and much fluffier context and learning points. And yes, you can learn about models, but still you can also question those models, right? Nobody can question the balance sheet because it's there and it's been there for 500 plus years. But a change model is just, it's fluffier. You see what I mean? I do. So tell me this then, if you have a team that isn't very diverse versus a team that is very diverse, do you experience quite a significant difference in the quality of the outcomes? I do. Actually, I had that experience about half a year ago. I was down in Switzerland running a seminar. And this was with a group of managers that I know quite well because I've run various uh, solutions with them. They have gone through one of those personality test profilings, right? Yep. And um, we, we ran, uh, it was on uh, stock, uh, inventory management. They were in inventory and engineering, that kind of stuff. And uh, there was one team of four individuals who finished every round of the exercise in about a third of the time of the other teams. So they took <laughs> 10 minutes when the others took half hour, which in parenthesis is a nightmare for us facilitators because we need to keep them busy at the same time as we need to speed up the rest of the room, you know, the drill. But the interesting thing was that they did not perform very well. And it turns out after a while that they were all in the same personality type. So okay. if you want to put it in layman's terms, because I'm a layman myself, they they were followers, right? They were all like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, oh, you say that? Yeah, sure, let's go along with that. They didn't seek the conflict that we talked about a minute ago. And uh, hence, they were very quick, really quick, but their outcome was not very thought through. And when they heard in the debrief, when the other team spoke, they were like, wow, yeah, we never thought of that. Oh, wow, you can think like this. So... Yeah, that's the biggest difference, that they will agree <laughs> and be fast, yeah. but they will not challenge the other opinions. And I think this also comes back to Lencioni's book, this uh, death of death by meeting. meeting. Yeah, and uh, where, where he says that in a meeting where you don't challenge, where you don't have conflict. I, I haven't read the whole book, so don't spoil the rest for me. But so far, <laughs> I've come to the conclusion that if you don't have conflict, you haven't really had a meeting. You just had like a report. You could just have read this information or you didn't but, need a meeting for that. Most meetings are like a death march. You don't look forward to them. When you're in there, time drags. When it's over, you look forward to hopefully never having to do that again. But you're doomed to repeat it because there's no clarity in terms of who does what by when. So there's no accountability. Uh, responsibility is not uh, taken by an individual. And if you ask two people to be responsible for the same thing, it generally doesn't get done because both of them is expecting the other one to do it. So what Lencioni's premise is, is that you should uh, have a clear objective. Everybody is fully present. So no laptops, no phones. You know, no emails, nothing. And everybody is expected to participate. And you know, everyone's opinion is valid. But what you don't do is you have clear boundaries in terms of you don't attack someone at an identity level. If you disagree with their opinion, you challenge it. And then you can slug it out. And at the end, 
what you end up with is an outcome that we, you know, you make a decision on, and then people commit to following through on their dis- on the decision and the actions which they've either volunteered or been assigned. And uh, I think what tends to happen with most meetings is that they end up with some nebulous outcome and uh, no clarity as to who does what by when. And as a result, you find yourself having the same conversation. And it's a bit like that film Groundhog Day, where you're experiencing the same misery over and over again, and uh, things don't progress. So one of the other things that I see a lot is organizations where there isn't common purpose and they're not all working towards that common purpose. And as a result, they may all be working very well within their individual fiefdom or stovepipe, but they're not working in concert. They're working against each other. And that then leads to politics in the boardroom because then you create a blame culture and excuses. So I'm really interested to take that a little bit further in terms... Have you taken on projects where you've been working with companies where there was conflict and politics? And by going through this experiential process, people began to understand one another and actually listen and hear what was being said and seeing it through someone else's eyes. Yes, and I love that type of experience. Seeing the full picture and seeing it together is really great. In some of those simulations we have, you are assigned a role. So you're in a group of 24 people, typically. We have six teams of four people in each. And those four team members in the same team, uh, there is one sales manager, one is finance, and one is in production, and one is maybe in planning or in in competitive um, uh, analysis or, 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 or a role like that. So they have very distinct responsibilities and distinct goals. So, you know, your goals will be different than mine. And sometimes, even in this setting of only four people, my vision gets clouded clouded, and I look for my goals as a sales manager instead of our goal as a team, which is obviously the way you win, right? You don't win as yeah. an individual. Just like you as an employee don't win, you win as a as a company, as a, as a team, right? Yeah. And it's fascinating that even with only four of us, we can really mess things up badly and, uh, and go bankrupt and all that. So getting the full picture is fantastic. Now what we do uh, when we start off a session like that, uh, I like to run this with mixed groups. So groups that consist of participants from various parts of the same corporation, that's the ideal, because then they will learn from each other's perspective. And I like to put them in a role which they are not very good at. So if you're <laughs> in production, then I would like to put you in sales and vice versa. So yeah. by just walking for an hour or two in somebody else's shoes, I had the beautiful experience in Russia some years ago when, when this one guy, <laughs> he stood up after a half a day and he, he screamed to everybody, now I know why Igor has been nagging on me for all those years. And now he was, <laughs> because now he was in Igor's shoes. Uh, I think Igor was production and he was sales in, in real life. And then it was vice versa here. And, and he heard himself say the same thing that Igor had been telling him for years, you know. And uh, that, that was really beautiful. So it's, it's a nice, safe environment of practicing to walk in somebody else's shoes. I would hate to do some of, the, some of my colleagues' work. We would go belly up immediately, I think. <laughs> but 
you know, if you can practice that in the simulation, it's, it's really good. This is one of the things that I, I encourage my clients to do, which is to have the salespeople. So, for example, in a hotel, what sales sells impacts every other department. So it impacts food and beverage, the events people, the front office, the reception, the housekeeping. And I think it's important that salespeople spend time in the environment where other people are being impacted by the sales that they make, the decisions that they make. And also, when we're having sales meetings, particularly for important rehearsals with a new prospect or a big deal, then to get people from different departments in. So get the CEO in, get the head of operations, get legal and finance, and have them sit in on those rehearsals so that they can bring that fresh perspective and play the role of the person that the salesperson is going to be selling to. Because very often in complex sales, there are up to nine or 10 people in a decision-making committee quite often. And if you don't have that diversity in the rehearsal process, then the salesperson is basically making it up on the spot to a large degree. And it's really important that in the same way that we want to transfer the skill and get them into the habit because they've learned the principles rather than just simply technique, then by having these different people in the rehearsal, it forces the salesperson to think differently and think about why the CEO has a particular issue or why they want this problem solved. And it could be very different from the chief technology officer or the head of operations or the software development people uh, who are uh, developing a piece of software. And if the salesperson doesn't understand that, what they tend to do is revert back to selling product. And no one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want an ERP system. Or (laughs) what I want is a car. You actually don't want a car. There's a whole series of things associated with the car. Why do you use it? uh, want it. Who do you travel with? What matters more to you? Is it performance? Is it safety? Is it fuel economy? Is it status? And it's so easy for a salesperson to make the assumption in the same way that managers often assume that salespeople are motivated by money. Interestingly enough, 10 years in recruitment taught me that money came fifth or sixth. What really mattered was feeling appreciated. And uh, have you come across Google's Project Oxygen? No, I haven't. Really fascinating bit of research Google did where they were trying to establish uh, Project Oxygen. And it was uh, some research to, to try and identify what would make a great manager and how to identify the qualities that made a manager great. Now, interestingly... Number eight in the hierarchy was being able to do the job that they were going to manage. So they didn't have to be great salespeople, but historically, the route to sales management is being a top producer in sales. But often top producers make appalling managers. The number one criteria was would other people in the team recommend to their friends that they join the team because of the manager? I did hear of the project. I didn't know the name of it, but I, I find it totally amazing. And we're all of us misled. We're we're all working in the opposite way than than what research shows, right? Absolutely. On my uh, wall at the office, I have a poster from my third favorite website, despair.com. 
And it's a picture of the Pamplona bull run. And the headline is tradition. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. <laughs> to the uh, point, yes. I, I think what we have a tendency to do is fall into the trap of uh, believing what we learned first. And our, our tendency is to revert back to that. So final question in terms of uh, experiential learning. By going down the experiential route, how much longer do you find people retain what they learn? And how much faster are they able to implement? 2.87 times. No, just kidding. But of course, something that you feel with your gut, that you learn with your gut or with your, not only your brain, you know, but you really feel the pain of going bankrupt together with this team. Ah, you really feel the a fantastic uh, acceleration of acquiring a less fortunate team in this room or really uh, winning something. And, and this feeling stays with you much longer. It's really fascinating. You know, I told you Selimi has been around since, since uh, a very long time. And I still meet people when I explain what I do. They say, yeah, yeah, I played something like that back at university. Here in Sweden, we're, and, and around the world, we work with several of the world's most renowned universities. They use our stuff in their trainings, and, and that's the thing that they remember. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they remember those stupid little plastic coins, and they remember, oh, and I remember if we, we had gone to this market instead of that, or if we had played one more year, we would have won, and, and this and that. Uh, and, they, and this can be old buggers like you and me. And they still Absolutely. remember what happened all those years ago. I bet they don't remember much of the other courses they had, but that experience they remember. So the learning sticks with you in another way. I remember experience. one class at school back in 1983, sorry, 82. And it was a general studies class with uh, Dr. McLaughlin. And he had us, we were negotiating a nuclear arms treaty Oh, uh, and one side was the Russians and one side was the Americans. And I can still remember that class with incredible clarity. And I remember who was in the room. I remember the layout because it was a visceral experience and it was transformational in terms of my learning. Yeah. Uh, so I absolutely get it. So okay. that part of retaining the learning, I'm, I feel really confident that it's a really efficient way of learning. Regarding your other question, how fast... Do you apply it? How fast are you able to, to actually do what you just yeah. learned? And I, uh, that, that's an important part of the facilitation. And the, I mean, that's what you want people to end with. What have you done now which will change the way you do things in real life? What have you learned? What did you pick up from either from me or the program or your colleagues? And uh, that is really... Uh, you, you really need to drive that point home. Otherwise, the experience of running a business simulation, a well-designed business simulation with a good facilitator is so much fun and so exciting that people can, you know, stay in the Disney World experience, if you know what I mean. Wow, I had a great time. And then, yeah, what did you learn? Yeah, I learned this and that. But what will you actually use that's further down the line because you're so high, if I can say so, <laughs> on the experience, you know. So it's, uh, it's really an important responsibility for us as facilitators to drive home that, look, your employer paid something for this day and uh, they didn't do it only for you to have fun. That's a really good side effect. 
but the main important issue is not even what you learned. It's actually what you're going to do differently. And uh, we usually use like a change buddy system where you team up with somebody from another team and discuss those questions. What can I do in my function differently based on the insights, learnings that I had these two days or whatever? Very interesting. Tara, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. What are you reading, watching, uh, listening to that's really influencing you at the moment? I know you've mentioned Patrick Lencioni. Is there anything else that you'd recommend? Okay, so one one read that I can recommend is, it has a really corny title, I think, How to Be Exceptional. It's uh, a Zenger. Have you read it? I haven't. Who's it by? Zenger Folkman. Sherwin and Steele. That's an American one. And uh, the whole idea is something that you mentioned earlier. It's about driving with your strengths or or develop your strengths and not your weaknesses. I, for one, will never be very good at, oh God, don't get me started, but a lot of things like project management or detailed things, stuff like that. And yeah, maybe I need to work my way up to an acceptable level. <laughs> but where I can be exceptional is on my few strengths instead, where I'm already good at and what which I'm passionate about. And I think that a lot of us try to be like our role model or somebody that we admire or somebody that we think does a good job, isn't it? There is this expression in English, I think, straight hair ain't got no curl. <laughs> is that right. is that the one? Uh, it might be an Americanism. I, I've yeah, never heard it. I apologize for that. But you often want what you don't have, right? Yeah. As for myself, I'm six foot six. A lot of people would love to have that height, and I'm not all that fond of it. That's my girth. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people in the sumo business would love to have that girth, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's my second career. Yeah, there you go. You want what you don't have, and we tend to, I think, aim for yet better at the things that we're not very good at and what if we can be exceptional at the things that we're already good at i I think that was a really nice message in that book excellent i'll definitely look that up thank you you've got a golden ticket and you can go back to speak to the idiot tour at age 23 what advice would you give him actually he was really lucky in this when he was 23 because yeah, my, my first job was totally fantastic. It was with the, I graduated from business school in 93, and uh, that was terrible times over here, at least. There were no uh, high unemployment and depression and all that, right? And uh, there were like one or two jobs in the whole of Sweden uh, available every week. <laughs> and one was like a, a medical surgeon, and the other one was uh, yeah, something else very specific, right? But then yeah. I found a marketing assistant in a company. And it was a small company, and they made a very unsexy product, non-sexy product called heat exchangers. And they were out in the, in the boonies, you know, out in the woods somewhere. But they still had 280 applicants for that job. And uh, I, I got a really good connection with the the MD who, who hired on that position. And so I, I managed to get the job. And it was such a ride. 
on getting the uh, because the the company was very successful. They had a new technology in heat heat exchangers that I can explain to you in another podcast about heat exchange. But <laughs> I was so lucky because they kept on growing forty percent every year and uh, had a healthy profit on the bottom line. We were on fantastic ride for those six years that I I joined that company. So I think it is important to find a leader or a manager that you. Like you said a minute ago, what, somebody who who is a reason to work at the company, no matter if they make heat exchangers or whatever other not so very interesting stuff they make, and also that the corporation has they either are very successful or they have a big chance of being successful because that will take you places and you will develop in ways that you don't have any clue of. My experience from my life so far, I'm 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 52, so I've I've lived a few years, but yeah. my experience is that the proportion of unplanned events is much higher than the proportion <laughs> of planned events. <laughs> that's why I've resigned on planning too much. And uh, I think that's a pretty good insight. Maybe I should have had that insight earlier. I would well, never have dreamed of working with heat exchangers, but I didn't know what it was until I... I, I feel largely the same. I've been very blessed. I've always enjoyed the work that I've done. And mostly I, I had not such great managers, but the way, when I did, they were brilliant. There's a book by Jack Trout and Al Reese called Horse Sense, which is all about finding a horse to ride. So find a great boss and do everything that you can to support them, make them the hero. Uh, and then they go. take you wherever they go. And that, that can, that's a really fascinating read. Tura, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. What, what are you struggling with yourself? Well, guess what? It's Corona times, right? Yeah. And I'm in the business of selling, developing, and running face-to-face training in, <laughs> in rooms where people sit together around tables and move plastic coins together. So guess what I'm <laughs> troubled with? So okay. right now it's really fascinating uh, because, I mean, we we have a, a, a portion of our sales is online or virtual classroom um, simulations and programs. But uh, we need to swing, uh, make a, a big turn here and, and uh, have, a, have that become a much bigger portion of what we do. So what we're struggling with now is to develop online or virtual experiences, which are... I cannot say that they are as exciting or as uh, effective as the face-to-face ones because there are so many pieces that are missing, you know. Me even smelling your nervousness or or seeing how the the competitors are sweating over there or people whispering or stealing plastic coins from each other. You you, you just don't get that part. Have you teamed up with any video games manufacturers? Yeah, we have teamed up with several different in different directions, we have uh, partners who do, yeah, the programming of the stuff that we have already, and we also work with uh, those who have been in the virtual simulations for a long time. So we're we're learning together with them. Our strength is our client list and our groups in seventy something countries. Right? This list of of really big corporations around the globe that use us and trust us, and their strength is that they have really good online or virtual simulation. So we, we try to make that marriage between those two strengths. What, what are your customers saying now that you've had time to go back to them? What are they saying that they want, given the fact that their people are working from home? 
I mean, uh, leading virtual teams has an interesting training need for some time, and that has totally exploded. Change management and change leadership has uh, there's a big interest in that, and of course. Whatever change management courses you had before Corona are totally irrelevant right now because, I mean, you know, it's usually planned changes that you talk about in those programs, right? Now it's unplanned or unwanted. And another thing is that almost all businesses, except those making rubber gloves and uh, face masks, (laughs) I guess, all the other ones, all the rest of us, we have problems with profit and cash flow. So actually, a lot of needs for uh, cash flow simulations and cash flow exercises that make people really understand what I, in my position, can do differently to improve the cash flow of the company. So I would say those three are things that we see. So leadership and change and uh, cash flow. Very different things, right? Tora, thank you so much. I found this conversation fascinating and I would love to talk for longer. Unfortunately, I know both of us have uh, prior appointments. But tell me this, how can people get hold of you? It's very easy. We have a website which is pretty good. It's called sellemi.com and that's C-E-L-E-M-I.com. And uh, apart from that, you know, my first name is Tori, T-O-R-E and dot bistrom, B-Y-S-T-R-O-M, at selami.com or selami.se. So those are the best ways of reaching me. And also, please uh, look me up on LinkedIn. You'll find me. And uh, I'm happy to, I, I really like the LinkedIn, some of those communities where people are interested in discussing development of themselves and, and the world. Not necessarily, I'm not, selling too much like trying to sell things on LinkedIn. there are a lot of people who, who just write out sell what they have on linkedin but yeah there are a lot of groups and communities out there which are uh, i think really worth the while and people solve problems and dilemmas together and i think they are they're worth taking a look at and uh, please look me up hook up brilliant Tora Bistrom, thank you very much for being such a fab- fabulous guest. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please comment, like, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch or you've got questions for either myself or Tora, then please ping me an email at mcauchi at sandler.com. And if you know somebody who you think would be a great guest, or you think you'd be a great guest to come on to the Inquisitor podcast, then please get in touch, set us up to have a conversation, and let's see where that goes. That's Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling and be safe. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure.